Let's bow for prayer. We rejoice, Father, in the words that we have spoken together here in this gathering. We rejoice in the words that have been sung. We praise you that you are a God who hears the cry of our heart and a God who rescues us in the darkness of sin. We pray that you would direct our understanding of the text that is before us, grow us as a church, and draw to Christ those who know not Him as Savior. We praise you for the privilege to be gathered here around the open word without fear that we will be stopped or harmed. As far as we can tell, you have provided for us this time together. And I pray that through the Spirit of God that you will teach us and instruct us and guide in our time together that your name might be praised. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. It seems that each day we watch our world's steady descent into moral darkness. Atrocities of war, dictatorial rulers, mass shootings, political duplicity, sexual revolution, suppression of truth, idolatrous affections on steroids. The moral gloom gathers around us like a thick fog. But let us also affirm, brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is no room for despair in our hearts. No matter the depth of moral darkness that press in upon us, despair has no place. Neither cowering fear nor bitter frustration or hopeless resignation, it has no place in our souls as followers of Christ. God promises us this, In Psalm 75, in verse 3, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? We may sense that the world is about to topple, but God assures us rest confidently, believer. I've got this. He's got it. Indeed, we can rejoice that God loves to intervene at those very moments in history when the moral darkness seems to be so spectacularly successful. At such times, we can count on God to steady the pillars, to rescue His people and protect His cause with countermeasures that often seem to come out of nowhere. Few cases better support this truth than the ministry of the prophet Elijah that we find in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. And we begin today a series of sermons considering the ministry of this man of God raised up at one of the darkest seasons in Israel's history. But before we delve into the text of 1st Kings, it's vital that we come to this text with some pieces of the background to understand, and this will be Uh, obvious to some of us, but uh, to others to help catch us all up and bring us together. This is essential background to Israel's monarchy, to understanding uh, 1 Kings as we delve into that today. But the first concept we need to bring to the table is the idea of theocracy. That is, in a manner that is distinct in Israel, in all of human history, God directly ruled the nation as his chosen people. He ruled it through direct revelation. God was the king of Israel. 
Secondly, this word monarchy, that is, kings ruled Israel in a mediatorial role. At a particular point in history, Israel spurned God's rule and requested to be ruled by kings in keeping with the practices of other nations. Now in the reading that we had this morning from Deuteronomy, we saw that that was not in itself evil to have a king. God, in fact, had prepared for this and providentially he used their godless desire to establish monarchy in his providence. Yet because God remained Israel's ruler, what was the assessment then of every king? The assessment of every king was whether God determined that that man's rule was righteous or unrighteous. So we see this recurring phrase, he did what was good, he did what was evil. This was the ultimate judgment of every king. In fact, sometimes the kings that were most successful and most prosperous from the outside, we don't even catch that in the text. The final test of every king of Israel's reign was whether or not he was righteous in the sight of God, the king. And so every king is thus evaluated in the text of Scripture. Third idea that we need to bring to our understanding here is idolatry. After the exodus from Egypt, Israel conquered the promised land, but Israel had no experience with the type of farming necessary to sustain life in the land. They had lived off the Nile and trenches leading off of the Nile to to supply water for their crops. That's all they knew. Now they've come to a land where they are dependent on rain. And they are dependent on a particular type of farming. And they don't know how to do this. God will teach them. They will be fine. Under the stipulations of the covenant, as they honor the Lord, He will prosper their crops. He assures them of that. He doesn't leave them out there to figure it out on their own. And yet, all around them, were Canaanites and nations around the Canaanites who worship Baal and Ashereth and they, this uh, god and goddess were the source of fertility, they were taught. If they would appease Baal, if they would appease Ashtaroth, then the crops would grow. And so idolatry became a major snag to Israel's relationship to God and coupled not only to fertility of the field, but also to the idea of fertility in the human realm led to a very sensual worship. And Israel was deeply affected by this darkness. It becomes a major part of the account of their history. A fourth piece. And that is the prophets. In British history, going back far enough, there was a long season when kings had court jesters. Court jesters were comedians who made fun of things as they were. They made fun of them in ways that in other contexts take the humor out of it and you're likely to lose your head. But the court jester could get away with anything because it was couched in humor and he could help the king see life as it really was, and like everybody else saw it. In a parallel sense, but without the humor, 
The prophets of Israel played a unique role in Israel's history and in the court of the kings. All nations had religious prophets at court. That was nothing new with that. But these prophets specialized in telling the king what he wanted to hear. Israel was different because Israel was a theocracy. Her prophets were free to confront the king with his moral failings. And it wasn't couched in humor. It was couched in terms of repentance. You know the law of God. You are responsible to know the law of God. It says this, you're doing other. Turn, king, to the ways of the Lord. Fight the idolatry that pervades the land. Be faithful to the Lord. The prophets had this ministry that was really unique to be able to tell the king what was up. Like the court jester that we've discussed, so the prophet could say, this is the word of the Lord. And tell the truth to Israel and to the king. Well, as time goes on and the king's one king follows another through the years, we think of Israel's monarchy is beginning with Saul, the first king. And then we know the account of David from a different line, from the, uh, Saul from Benjamin and David from the tribe of Judah. And David's son then becomes a king after him, and his son becomes king after him. But in 931 B.C., there was a split in the kingdom as Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was the legitimate king of united Israel. But now in 931 and following, Jeroboam takes the northern, king, the northern tribes and forms a separate kingdom. So as we see these two arrows don't just fill in there under Rehoboam, that's the southern kingdom. And one king will follow another. And as the kings and the chronicles lay this out, they just keep flip-flopping back and forth. So during the reign of this king in the south, this king in the north uh, took up the throne and, and the like. And we just see that string continuing. So under Jeroboam, think northern kingdom, and under Rehoboam, the southern kingdom. We have it pictured here in the green and the purple. The northern kingdom of Israel, it was called. So that maybe is a little confusing because Israel was the united name. But now we have Israel speaking of the Ten tribes to the north and the purple area, the southern kingdom of Judah to the south and godly people who identified with that southern kingdom because in the northern kingdom there will not be one king described as he did right in the eyes of the Lord. With the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, it was, a mixed, it was mixed results. Some kings did well and were righteous, and some kings did not. So with that background in place, we turn our consideration now to Elijah, a prophet of God ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel. There's no good kings in this kingdom. And Elijah will have his ministry there in that northern kingdom. I'll just bring this with you through the weeks as we have opportunity to consider the text. <clears throat> I've spoken of Elijah here. Many speak of him as the prophet of fire, and there are good reasons for that. Just for today, we're referring to him as the prophet out of nowhere. 
But we see the setting, the darkness, the moral darkness and gloom has come to the the northern kingdom of Israel. And we look at the depraved and decadent reign of King Ahab in Samaria as the background, the kind of the launch into our understanding of who Elijah was and the ministry that he had. Notice verse 29. As we pick up the text, 1 Kings 16 and verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. This verse reveals a lot more than meets the eye. We're so distant from the context that it just seems like basic information. But first of all, let me add this. Asa king of the southern kingdom of Judah was a righteous king and thus a testimony to Ahab. Asa walked with God. He was faithful to the word and he was there in that southern kingdom during this time and this reign. Second, Asa's reign contrasted sharply with that of Ahab's father, Omri. Notice verse 25 of this chapter. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That was bad. The false worship that Jeroboam introduced. And in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So he did more evil than all who were before him. Third, as we think on verse 29, King Ahab's reign was marked by great wealth and he was a man of idolatrous greed. We just hear the word Samaria. We might be familiar, that's a a city in Israel. But this was the newish capital of the northern kingdom and it basked in opulence. Ahab had everything going for him as far as the world was concerned. He was successful, he was wealthy, and he was godless. The moral gloom just continued to deepen around his throne. Verse 30, we then read, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. This is obviously connected to verse 25 and the comment on his father. This is not to say that Omri or Ahab did more evil than all the kings before them combined, but it is to say that everything hit a new low. He was the worst of a really bad lot of kings was Omri, and now Ahab, his son, was worse than his father. Godly people probably thought during Omri's reign, it cannot get worse than this. But it did. Omri's son Ahab plunged the nation into an even deeper moral darkness. This was a new low for the kingdom of Israel. The specter of despair hovered menacingly over God's faithful people. Verse 31, And as if it had been a light thing, For him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, an Asherah pole or monument to Asheroth. Ahab did more 
to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Verse 31, as if it was a a light thing. We might read that as, he did this as if it was no big deal. It was as if his conscience was was seared. He just went this direction thinking little of it. And he married Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the Phoenician king, Ethbaal, who ruled Sidon and later became ruler of Tyre. If you know anything about Tyre and Sidon, they were shipping communities. Israel never had shipping communities. They had a little bit going down to the south, but not out of the Mediterranean. And just go a little bit north of Israel and the Phoenician kingdom had great wealth because of their shipping prowess. Said in our terms today, by marrying Jezebel, Ahab made bank. I mean, this this made him a lot of money. Israel had a lot of goods to move, but they were always limited to moving it by foot traffic or mules or camels or the like, or possibly by some sort of wagon. But now they were shipping produce and production upwards north and shipping it off the various parts of the world, and Ahab was getting richer and richer. Marrying Jezebel was a great boon for his financial security and his natural greed. But there was a cost. By bringing this woman into his court, Ahab opened his heart to the worship of Baal, the god of Jezebel's father, whom he served, we know historically, as king priest so she was all in to idolatry she was all in to the sensuality of the worship of Baal and Asherah and brought that to the court of what was to be God's people the worship of Baal was inexpressibly sensual and depraved the interest in it was as obvious as one's hormones. And the supposed result of it was more wealth, more productivity, more things going the way of ease and security. There just was no downside as far as the flesh was concerned. But as we look at it from God's perspective... We realize then that this is a low point in Israel's history. King Jeroboam had set up an alternative syncretistic worship that at least acknowledged Yahweh. But the worship of Baal was a full-out dismissal of the one true and living God. It was a selling of the whole market away to follow these false gods. And the erection of a temple to Baal was an in-your-face dismissal of King Asa to the south the temple of Solomon built to Yahweh and God's glorious presence. Think of it. I mean, it just makes us shudder. The very presence of the living God in the Shekinah glowing glory was hovering over the ark behind the veil in the temple in Jerusalem. And this man builds a temple to Baal. And it's no big deal. 
We probably feel that way every once in a while. We get those feelings. This world's really tilted against us. It is really opposed to the will and the purposes of God, to the morality and the goodness that reflects the character of God. Well, Israel was in that spot here in a way that we probably don't yet understand. Things had gotten very, very dark. Ahab constructs this temple to Baal. In verse 33, he makes an Asherah pole, a monument to this goddess to the, and its sensuality. On hills and under mature trees, the sensual and vile worship of Asherah plunged Israel further into depraved darkness. What happened on the hills and under the trees in Israel looked like what happens on the screens of this culture today. Played out in full sight as a godlessness overwhelmed and certainly could cause despair to the heart of anyone who loved God. One way ancient authors emphasize a point was to repeat it, uh, Hebrew authors particularly, and we see that repetition here in verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a second time that's been said about him. This was a really bad man. The evil went deep within him and it caused people to tremble who loved the Lord. Verse 34 might hit us like a, just a, a historical attachment. Verse 34, in his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. That might just seem like a construction project here, but I believe that this is placed here specifically to show us another example building the Temple of Baal, this Asherah pole and monument. But here's another example of how deeply depraved Ahab's reign was. He signed the building permit on Jericho. This takes us back in time. This is not just an addendum. It rather takes us back to the curse that Joshua had issued when Jericho was conquered in the conquest. So as Israel came into the promised land that God had given to them, Jericho was brought to rubble and Joshua said this will stand for the ages as a testimony to the power of God. Anyone who chooses to fortify and build up this city will do so at the cost of his oldest and youngest son. Uh, it wasn't, the curse did not involve somebody simply living on the land. But the idea of the fortification of it is what Heal is, is doing here. And let me assure you, you did not build up Jericho, a place of military significance, particularly connected to the Moabites on the other side of Jordan. You did not do that without the king's favor. The first thing the king would ask is, what are you doing there? Somehow, though we don't know the story, Heal and Ahab got together and Ahab signed off on this. And just another example of the God of heaven does not exist. I can do whatever I want 
I can sin in any way I want, and you can call it sin, and I don't. He signs off on the project, but as God had promised, and this is where the hope begins to rise, God kept his word. The king of heaven is alive. He acts, and it is at the cost of this man's youngest and oldest son that we don't know the circumstances of that. The prophecy comes true, and this father buries his oldest and his youngest because of this statement. Back to the conquest, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. There is a God in heaven whose word comes true every single time. And this leads out of the darkness to the light. We see the sudden and disruptive emergence of prophet Elijah from Gilead in the middle of all of this mess. Chapter 17 and verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Something's happening here that we've got to catch. How does the Bible characteristically introduce an important person? How does that usually go? I'm paraphrasing here and borrowing, <clears throat> but I think this point was, is helpful to just put it this way. Isn't this what you'd expect? This is how you're supposed to start 1 Kings 17. Something like this. Now behold, there was a man who lived in Gilead, a prophet, Elijah the Tishbite by name, the son of so-and-so. And it came to pass that when Ahab began to worship Baal, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying. And we see that type of speech, that type of writing consistently in the Old Testament text. What do we see here? Elijah's just talking. It's a little introduction to him. He's, from, he's a Tishbite in Gilead, which is utterly important. We'll get to that in a moment. But there he is talking in the palace of the king without introduction whatsoever. Against this common pattern, he just drops out of nowhere onto the scene. And I think this is meant to get our attention. It's presented this way. There is no genealogical information. There is no historical background. Elijah is presented almost like the Melchizedek of prophets. He just is there. With shocking suddenness, standing in Ahab's palace, delivering a word from God. Notice in verse 1 here of chapter 17, he speaks of himself as, 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 as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. That, that's a phrase that the officials of Ahab would have used. I stand before King Ahab. That means I'm an official in the court and I do his bidding. Elijah takes that very language and says, I stand in the court of God and I do his bidding and I'm here, King, to tell you what's up. Let me tell you, Elijah was no retainer in Ahab's court. From this moment on, Ahab spent 
much time and effort seeking to kill this man, as did his wife Jezebel. And we, of course, cannot entirely paint the scene with precision, but we can certainly add some color. And it's one of the reasons that I include here the place names, Samaria and Gilead, because that is a point of tremendous contrast. Elijah was from Gilead. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But the word itself means rugged. It designated a territory in the Transjordanian highlands, an area of fields, of forests, of rugged mountain peaks and jagged valleys. You know who lived here? Nomads. Bedouins. People who could close up shop really quickly and move on because the people coming in were probably not up to any good. There were no walled cities in this area. This was the deep rural countryside, so to speak. We learn elsewhere that Elijah was clothed in in a fitting way to have come from that area. That is, he wore animal skin mantles with a leather belt in contrast to the woven linens of Ahab's court. So the best we can probably do is picture something like this. It's like a cowboy off a remote ranch in western Montana, dusty cowboy boots, ratty jeans, a tattered cowboy hat, a really big buckle, and he stands in the Oval Office before the president. He's completely out of place. And there's the president seated cross-legged in a $5,000 suit, tie, $1,000 wingtips, and saying, what do you want? Elijah, in his rough, cheap clothing, probably depicting the place from which he came in a hundred ways, is standing in the opulence of the king's palace in Samaria. I'm standing before you, king, but that doesn't matter to me. I stand before the Lord of heaven and earth. And I'm telling you this, you know it's dry outside. You know we need rain desperately. It's been six months since rain fell. Baal's failing you, Ahab. I want to talk to Jezebel about this because something's really wrong. There's six months that have gone by with no rain. And I'm telling you, as one who stands before the Lord of heaven and earth, you're not going to see rain for three more years. The early and latter rains, fairly heavy, coming in October, November, March, April, were utterly necessary for the crops to grow. And as he says, there will not be dew. That would include, the Hebrew word includes drizzle and light rain that was essential between those heavy rain periods. If you didn't get that rain, you didn't get crops. Rain, drizzle, Fertility, rivers, that's all Ahab's territory. That's Baal's doing. Who do you think you are coming in here and telling me this? 
yeah, we're having some dry days. It'll change. And Elijah says, no, it won't. It's by my word. I mean, the audacity of that. Only by my word will it rain. The audacity, unless you've come from the throne room of God and delivered his message, which he had. There's no arrogance in it at all. This is just the facts, king. It's not going to rain for three years, and it's going to get really ugly. God's herald, this uncouth Gileadite, denounces Ahab's idolatry and says in so many words, the God of heaven is God alone. He will discipline your prosperous kingdom. He will bring you and your kingdom to its knees by withholding His covenant blessings because of the disobedience of your ways, King Ahab. Go ahead and pray to Baal. You might want to contact Jezebel. But it will be at my word as God's prophet that rain will come and no sooner. Mark my word. And he disappears. I don't mean literally, but like he's just gone. And we don't know why. Maybe Ahab let Elijah go because he did not believe him. Maybe he dismissed him as a lunatic. Maybe he was too stunned to stop him, but... Thinking back on it, Ahab will probably think many, many times, why didn't I take the guy out right then and there? But Elijah disappears and moves quickly away from Samaria to preserve his life as God leads, and we'll get to that later. But from this point forward, Elijah was the most wanted man in Israel, the most hated enemy of the state. Maybe Ahab let Elijah go, but in any event, he left and be on the run for some time. He's hidden now from sight in the rugged wilderness of Transjordan once again from whence he comes. And we know now that the battle between God and Baal is on. There is no question that this battle is there. So as we enter 1 Kings chapter 17, Israel is on the verge of moral bankruptcy. Ahab and Jezebel are laboring to unify the kingdom around Baal, and by doing that, to then utterly extinguish the very memory of Yahweh in the land. By promoting idolatry, they are pressing Israelites to find their identity in fantasies. As human beings, our identity can only be found in relationship to others. If my identity is rooted in God, I can be a real person with real joy. But if I seek my identity in a fantasy, a fiction, I will be left empty and in despair. Ahab and Jezebel were leading Israel down this path through idolatry, as many are leading others down a similar path today. Fantasies about money, about power, about sexual identity, about health and welfare, fantasies that come through idolatries. So I think this narrative, though we are not the nation of Israel, there are parallels that we cannot make, there is nonetheless a connection that is certainly very 
directly applicable to us. We learn from this narrative that there is a limit to God's patient endurance of such evil schemes. God will not be mocked indefinitely, and those who build their life on fantasies will face Him. God will not permit the destructive powers of sin to go unaddressed forever. At just the right time, when the darkening gloom seems poised to conquer, God provides a prophet of light, a herald of truth to assault the darkness in a clash of kingdoms. We see that repeatedly in Scripture. We certainly see that here in the ministry of Elijah. And so we, of course, gather this Lord's Day to celebrate the life-giving grace of the ultimate prophet whose death plunged him into the deepest darkness. Christ entered the palace of death, so to speak, and he announced his victory over the grave. Paying the debt of our sin by dying in our place, Jesus came out on the other side in victory over death. And now on this side of that glorious resurrection, there is no reason for us to despair ever. We're reminded by Omri and Ahab that things can indeed get worse. And I think that we should not evidence shock when that takes place. We think at times as we look at our lives, it's never been darker. It can't get worse. It can We're reminded of that here. But we are also reminded that we will never have cause to despair because our God stands and steadies the shaking pillars of this world. One commentator says this, wherever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. Don't forget that, follower of Christ it may seem that the darkness is winning. It's always a short-term matter. Wherever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with His man and His movement and His plans to ensure that His own cause will never fail. So let's remove it from our hearts. Remove it from our speech, and our demeanor. Let's let it go for good. Despair, cowering fear, bitter frustration, hopeless resignation, temper tantrums. None of these are fitting to one who walks in the victory of Christ. Our great prophet, priest, and king has broken the power of sin. We should act like it. He has conquered death we should rejoice. He has secured salvation for His people and is on schedule to throw death and Satan into the lake of fire. We should act like it. In light of His triumph, let us face the gathering gloom not with despair, but with hope. Not with disheartened bitterness, but with anticipatory joy. Let us respond to the darkness and the gloom like the light that we are. And let us respond to it knowing that there is a God in heaven who has never, ever lost. And He never will. Does that exude 
from our spirit. That victory, that conquest, that God who always shows up in the darkest moments with the light that's necessary. May it mark our spirit. May it give us courage. And may God add to the people like Elijah who stand up and speak the truth when it is not safe and it is not popular but brings glory to God. Let's pray together. We pray, Father, for that spirit of Elijah. We pray for a spirit of genuine revival, of love for your truth, of the death of the fantasies that are crushing the life out of people in our day and time. God, we thank you for this ancient reminder that you are a sovereign God who reigns with absolute authority and will not be thwarted in your good desires. May we as your people, though we are a minuscule minority in this world, I pray that we would cling in faith to the fact that you are the one who's steering the ship. You are steering the course of history for the glory of your name, for the salvation of your people, and ultimately for the renewal of this broken and fallen world. God, I pray that the triumph that Christ has won and the triumph that is in our future would mark our spirit, would stabilize our souls, and that we would move about this world with joy of heart to know that you hold steady the shaking pillars. Nothing will ever happen in this world that you have not ordained for the glory of your name. And I pray that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the trials that we face, that we will never, ever forget that you are the victor. I pray that that spirit would pervade. And for those who have not placed their faith in the work that Christ has done to pay the penalty of sin and to defeat death by resurrection, for those who do not perceive Him to be the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords, God, I pray that You bring light into their dark soul and show them the reality of God, the reality of who You are, and to show them the emptiness of the fantasies of this world. And when people are crushed by those fantasies, May this church stand as a beacon of light and hope as we proclaim the message of reconciliation to God and transformation of broken hearts and broken lives. God, aid us to that end. Do this work in Eden Baptist Church, we pray, for the glory of your name through Christ. Amen.